When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you want to do any more coughing, George? No. No, you're done. You're done. Okay. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray of inews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. I'm joined, as always now, by George Belshaw and Calvin Beton. Calvin, uh, how are you? Uh, yeah, very well, very well. Just uh, an evening of watching the tennis. Yeah, so, um, uh, an all-British lineup, um, which is probably going to make us quite distracted because we are recording in the middle of the uh, the running order. George, you've had a, a day, I believe. Yes, I've um, had a very long journey back from Manchester. I went to visit some friends, and let's put it this way, the, the trains weren't really working. I right. stood up for about four and a half hours, and I've already, like, I've got quite a bad knee at the minute, so it's not been very fun. So yeah, as regular listeners will know, George is one of the uh, yeah one of the most injured people in tennis, and I include Juan Martín del Potro in that particular uh, in that particular bracket. I wanted to start by um, mentioning something that George said to me last week, which is that uh, we do always uh, ask you to leave us a rating and a review on the podcast. Um, a lot of you won't ever hear that because uh, I usually do it as the uh, theme tune kicks in. And I know a lot of people hear the closing music and uh, happily tick onto their, their next podcast. So I'm doing it at the front here um, to remind you, uh, George, how much of a confidence boost does it give you when you read a nice review about your voice, which seems to be the main focus of most of the reviews? I, I, I was going to say that there's not been too many of them to get me excited. So when I, when I do see them, I, I just feel so wonderful, to be honest. Yeah. And, you know, it, I think genuinely the ones we have had before, um, we just enjoy hearing the feedback. And I know James did some really good feedback forms that are really helpful. We want you guys who listen to this to enjoy it. Um, so it is really valuable and yeah, just helps other people find us, I guess. Um, which, which hopefully, if you're point. Here, you might want other people also to enjoy it. So, yeah. yeah yes, exactly. What What could be better than getting together in the pub and talking about our little podcast? Isn't that the dream? Uh, anyway, let's get on with the tennis, shall we? Because there is loads to talk about this week. Uh, Andy Murray picked up his 700th career win. As I say, he is playing as we speak. Uh, but we'll have a bit of a chat about that. And uh, uh, one of Calvin's colleagues is also out there working with him. So we'll see exactly what the feedback has been like from that. Uh, we'll, of course, talk about Naomi Osaka. Anyone who's been following Indian Wells will have seen what happened to her the other night. She was heckled by the crowd um, and it, it affected her quite badly. And we'll discuss what that means for tennis going forward. Uh, Novak Djokovic and uh, his entry into Indian Wells and exactly what went on with that. We'll talk about Roger Federer and the state of his injury. We'll talk about Emma Raducanu. She's just lost to Petra Martic. Uh, Rafa Nadal's going to play Dan Evans. We'll have a look at that. Amanda Anasimova, Leila Fernandez, Jack Draper. This could be quite a busy little hour, I think. I'm. Uh, <laughs> we're going to run over. I'm going to put money on that early on. So without any further ado, let's start with Andy Murray. As I say, he is playing as we are recording against Alexander Bublik. He's just lost the uh, first set, 7-6, in a 20-point tiebreak, uh, including three set points for Murray. Um, George, I, I, I'm starting to feel like Andy Murray just plays the same four people over and over again. It's Taro Daniel, Alexander Bublik, Nikolos Basilashvili, and and then he's, by that point he's out. Um, but nevertheless, 700, I mean, 700 career wins is a, is a heck of an achievement itself, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely superb. Um, speaks to his longevity. And I guess when you consider how many of his recent years have been plagued by injury, it's actually no mean feat that he's actually got to that sort of total in some ways. Um, you know, the guys above him. Um, I was going to say, I mean, have you already looked at this list? I've, I've got the list. There, there are 17 players in front of him. 17? Um, 17 men. I'm, I make it six. 
Yeah, I think you're looking at different lists. I think mine might include pre-open era. Ah, I see. Yeah, I don't count the pre-open era because it's silly tennis. It's not real. More than six open era anyway, isn't it? I've got Connell, Federer, Lendl, Nadal, Djokovic, Villas, Nastasi, McEnroe, Agassi, Edberg, uh, Sampras, Ferrer, Becker on my open era. Whatever list is correct, um, what you can't deny is that is that is serious company. I mean, like there is David Ferrer is a name that sticks out there a bit, with the greatest of respect to David Ferrer, but you know, he didn't win a Grand Slam. Um, the rest of them, I think, pretty much without exception, are guys you would maybe not have in the GOAT debate, but they're guys you would as legends of the game, right? Yeah, absolutely. And Murray is in that bracket. We've said it before, you know. In any other era, I think we probably all think he gets to about Agassi's total of slams. I think he's in—he's a player of the same caliber of that Agassi, McEnroe guys like that. I think he's absolutely brilliant. It's just the fact he's had to battle against three ridiculous athletes who will go down as probably three of the greatest of any athlete, never mind just tennis. So, you know, he's—he's a fantastic player, and he's been—you know—a great advocate for the sport for Britain. Um, Had. Some heartbreaking moments, had some wonderful moments, but it's just been quite a joy to follow his story, really, I think. Calvin, I mean, I, I think I know your answer to this, but he deserves to be in that company, doesn't he? And, and perhaps further up that list. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've been on record before. I think he's one of the top 20 players of all time. And I think that's actually a fairly decent way of judging it, I think, on, on those kind of stats. Although I wouldn't say that David Ferrer is in that list. <laughs> Um, but yeah. I think it gives a basic idea. Um, I always find that David Ferrer was always a weird one, wasn't he? Because people always used to go like, oh, he's what he's the most underrated player of all time. Like, no, he's not. He's rated about where he is. Like, <laughs> like, well, like who, like, he's, he's kind of what he is, isn't he? He's like never, never won a slam. Like, you know, he's like where he is. Everyone thinks everyone who doesn't think David Ferrer was quite good. He's, yeah, he was yeah, all yeah, right I think quite, quite good kind of sums it up. Like that's kind yeah. of that's exactly where he is. Yeah, he gets the tag, doesn't he? The best player to not win a Grand Slam, but I'm not. I don't that, think he's even I'm that. Sure that is true. Well, who is the best I, player not to win a Grand Slam then? Marcelo Rios. Ah, uh, there you go. He's world number one. Like, <laughs> I think yeah. that's pretty. Yeah, I mean, and you know, and whoever hasn't won one now already. Um, <laughs> wow, well, I mean, that's like Stefanos Tsitsipas. Uh, I mean. Yeah, Zverev. <laughs> I mean, you know, Zverev as much as he's an absolute he on that list. <laughs> yeah, Zverev as much as he's an absolute idiot. If even if he carries on the career that he's had now, winning what he does in terms of Master Series and doesn't win a Slam, he'll end up. I think he'll have end up being a better player than David Ferrer. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, he, he, he is. well, look, look, Zverev beats the top players in the world more regularly than David Ferrer did. Like he very beats like he beats Djokovic regularly, doesn't he? Now, mm. who, who um, wants to have a, a prediction of the number of titles David Ferrer won? The number of titles. Number of titles. I mean, is it something silly like three? No, 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 it's... no, no. About twenty. Oh, I can't actually see the full number. Hang on, one <laughs> Great, it's twenty-seven, George. <laughs> um, I looked it up. Quick... Yeah, so, um, yeah, on on Murray, um, yeah, he's definitely one of the the top 20 players of all time, if not higher. Um, He was, you know, a bit unlucky to fall in the era which he did, although you could also argue that being in that era elevated his level as well. So it's it's not independent of each other. Um, He might not have been as good if he'd have been in, if he'd have been in another era, for example. But yeah, he's a phenomenal tennis player. With Ivan coming back into the team, you know, it gives me a lot of belief as well because a lot of people don't believe in me anymore and, and don't think I'm capable of doing that. And he's someone that I do think that he would he would tell me if he didn't think it was it was possible. So, yeah, to have him back around and and, and believing in, in my game and what I can achieve is is important for me. And we've had great results in the past, and I'm sure my, my results will will improve again uh, with him by by my side. Now, the eagle-eyed among you, um, or actually any readers of my Twitter feed in the last couple of days, will have seen that Andy's got a new face working with him this week in Indian Wells, uh, Mark Hilton, namely. Calvin, uh, Hilton is a guy you obviously know pretty well. He's, he's based with the LTA, but he's sort of on loan with, uh, with Murray just for this week. Uh, 
it must be weird. I know Murray's someone you worked around a lot, but do you think someone like Hilt still gets a kick out of going and working with a guy like him for a week? He wouldn't do it otherwise, right? Yeah, I think he probably does get a kick out of it. But Hills has been at that level before. It'll not be there'll be no sort of stargazing going on. He'll he's been around that level, um, and he spent a lot of time around that. And he'll also spent a lot of time around Andy. This is not like it's not somebody you won't have met before. Um, mm. So they'll know each other, and and as well as that, you know, Hills is he's one of the I was going to say he's one of the best tennis coaches in Britain. He's one of the best tennis coaches in the world. Mm. So he, he won't feel there'll be no imposter syndrome for sure on that. He'll, he knows he's a good he's a good coach and he'll know he's a good coach without being remotely arrogant about it. Mm. And and what do you think is the idea? Because we know that Andy's got Hilts out there this week. And then I think Leon Smith, the Great Britain Davis Cup captain, is going to go to uh, Miami and James Trotman is going to do a bit of work there. But he he's out there anyway. I mean, what, what do you think is the idea there? Is it just... Lendl doesn't fancy it and Andy needs someone to, you know, book courts. <laughs> it's more than that. Um, he obviously values his coaches a lot because, you know, he, he puts a lot of thought into who coaches him and that kind of thing. And he's obviously spent a lot of time around Leon before and he'll know Trotz really well. I mean, they, they're good coaches, you know. I think this is one of the things that like I, I'd go as far as they're, they're all better coaches than, than Ivan Lendl is. <laughs> um, I think what Lendl brings isn't necessarily coaching, but those guys are are top coaches. They're, they're really good coaches, and Murray will get a, a, a large amount of benefit from them if if he takes in the information that they give him, which I'm sure he will. Um, and I think he's he's as I've said before. I think at this this stage of Murray's career now and at this level, it's not a case of like, and it's same with all of those players. It's not a case of telling them something. And them listening, it's more a, a, a different pair of eyes on the match and a conversation that will go on. And often at that level, the, the 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 development and the conversations are sometimes they're not necessarily on the court. It might be at, at night over dinner or something where you'll discuss something that in, in their game or one of their opponent's games. And it's just having good tennis brains and communicators around you, I think, that he's looking for at this stage in his career. Calvin, we've spoken a bit about what we think kind of Murray needs to do. And, you know, I think we've kind of alluded to in the past that he probably needs to have some kind of tough conversations with his team. Is it better to have people he's known for a long time in that situation? Or do you think it would be better to have a, a completely fresh person who gives him a completely fresh take? Uh, is it harder for them to give that kind of feedback, you know, having this relationship they probably want to keep fostering, if that makes sense? I don't think so. No, I mean those guys are pretty outspoken, and it's why they're good coaches that they'll they'll speak their mind and and that kind of thing. It's just whether he can listen to it. It's not even a case of whether he listened to it. I mean, listen, I I've said before. I think if he's going to get anything like the results he wants to get, he has to be more aggressive than he's playing at the minute. Now he's a much greater tennis brain than I am, so I'm, I can't see how he doesn't know that. The problem is whether it's just in his nature. You can go on, and I've had players do this. You can say, players can say, I'm going to go out there today. I'm going to be more aggressive. I'm going to go for my shots more. And then it comes down to it. And as we've seen just now, for people who are watching it, he had a set point in the first set and put away from a drop shot. And he just pulled back off it a little bit. And sometimes when you've been playing for that long, it just becomes in your nature that you're just a bit more passive than other players. And he's had a hell of a career by being a bit more passive is probably a bit harsh, a, a bit more pragmatic in his game. So it's difficult now for him to come out and start swinging at every ball and playing basically like Alexander Bublik. For, for the record, there probably is something to be said for being fairly passive against Bublik because he can just kill himself. <laughs> really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like I say, it's, it's not like he's being, it's, it's more difficult with anybody to convince them to change away from something that has brought them success I think and and that's the thing but you just wonder like whether whether his movement is hampered too much for him to play like that or whether the game has just moved on a little bit since then that where you can be that pragmatic and still win at the top level I'm not so sure about hmm. It was interesting to hear him talk about the kind of challenges and, and the, the fight that he's been through to, to get to 700. He said he got to 600, I think, in Cincinnati in 2016. I don't think he would have expected it to take him another six years to, to put another 100 on there. There was It was just a nice, nice bit when he, he said, you know, it's been hard. The physical battle has been tough. 
mentally it's been challenging as well. I think he he is at a point in his career now when he can reflect more. I mean, he, he's always been a good reflector, I think, you know, especially in the latter stage of his career, but he can look and say, you know what, this has been tough. And I know we've said it before, but I also think some of the way he talks, he's kind of starting to acknowledge that, you know, this is starting to be the beginning of the end. Um, there's also a nice clip, which uh, I'll, I'll put in here, uh, talking about uh, his kids at home. I think they're, they're aware. Um, my, my eldest one is aware now. She's six. Um, and, yeah, she knows that I'm... Yeah, like, sometimes she calls me Andy Murray, which I find incredibly <laughs> awkward. <laughs> um, and I'm like, no, like, I'm daddy. Like, I'm not, I'm not Andy Murray, I'm daddy. And she, she now does it to wind me up. I don't know if it's deliberate or conscious or anything, but I always think that when you hear him talking about his kids, you know, and he got very emotional talking about his family in Australia. I think they're on his mind a lot more because it feels like a choice now. Like 10 years ago or, well, five years ago when he only had one and one on the way, it wasn't a choice for him to be on tour. That was his job. Whereas now this feels like a choice that he's making to be away from home, which I think is a, a switch in mentality. I don't know. I'm probably reading too much into it, but... Um... I, th- I think there's some... It's it's maybe a sort of a paradox in that regard because I, I agree with everything you're saying there, as, as any human being would think that way. But he's also a warrior, and, and you can't get that out of him. I think it's from the limited amount that I know of Andy. He's obsessively competitive, and that's what has brought him to this career that he is now and and the career that he's had sorry and I think he'll know that once that stops he'll never get that back there's it's mm. impossible to get it back you can coach a player and you can get some of it back but once like now he's now as, I, as I'm speaking now he, he's six seven two one down in a master series once you stop that you never get that feeling again of being in that position again you can play a bit of exhibition. You might coach a player who ends up there and he'd be sat in the stand, but it'll never be the buzz that he gets there. And he knows there's a, there's only so many of those days left now. I keep making the comparison in my head, and I'm not actually convinced I've ever said it because, well, I don't know, maybe I have. I keep thinking about Leighton Hewitt because just because of when I grew up and like, you know, when I grew up watching tennis, Leighton Hewitt was sort of one of the first like world number ones that I really remember. I remember a bit of Sampras like because he was dominant at Wimbledon when I was really small. But Leighton Hewitt was kind of the first one and he just kept, he hung around forever. You know, he I think I'm just looking at his stats now between 2012 and 2015, he played every Grand Slam and he only won about seven matches. And I do wonder if there is a similarity there in terms of, I mean, Calvin, you'll, you'll know more about Leighton Hewitt than me just because you're more conscious of him, but... I do think there's a similarity in end of career there. And it makes me think, well, heck, maybe maybe that warrior spirit does keep Murray going for four years without getting to a quarterfinal. I don't think so, purely because the main difference is that, that Hewitt's career kind of continued as it always was. And he, he became world number one in a particularly weak era. And for about 12 months, he played out of his skin. But he was one of the... I mean, he was a great player, don't get me wrong, but he was one of the, the worst world number ones, I think, that, that we've had. Yeah. Um, like, he spent way more time at world number one than Andy Murray did, but he, he's nowhere near as good a player as Andy Murray uh, is was. Um, he sort of the main fell thing, into the gap be- between Sampras and Federer, right? Yeah, yeah, where there was like, you also had like, your, uh, I do a bit of pluralization here, you had your Moyers your Rioses and your Ferreros. <laughs> but, um, um, and, um, but I think the main difference is that like Hewitt just, he just kind of carried on and the players just got better. Whereas Murray, there's the specific one. He has a metal hip. Yeah. That's um, it, it's, you know, and it's like, it's not, if he hadn't have had that hip operation, I imagine he'd have kept going, but he'd be a lot better play now. He'd st- if he hadn't had the hip problem, he'd still be, he'd still be, he might well be world number one now. Mm. Um, still. It's funny we'd like to speak about here because he's clearly someone that Murray's reached out to and confided in quite a lot around this hip. And, you know, Hewitt, we've sort of joked in the past, just feels like he's never going to retire. And he's been a big, genuine influence in those sort of conversations with Andy, where Andy said, look, I know I can't do this in 10 years time and I'm going to miss it. And it's going to be really hard to give up. And, you know, someone like Hewitt is 
still running around playing doubles randomly. It feels like he's 100. He's actually not that old, is he? I think he's exactly the same age as Federer, possibly. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I'm just saying, I think he's weirdly become quite a big influence on what Murray's doing now and how Murray thinks about his own game, his own life and kind of philosophy, I suppose, to playing tennis. And Well, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's weird that you say that. I just think they're on, like you say, he's the same age as Federer and like Federer in theory is still a player. And I, I remember the first time that Murray, that um, Hewitt came to my attention was when I, the only time I've ever been to Australia was in 1998. Um, and he was playing the hop. I don't know whether it was the Hopman Cup or whether he was playing some exhibition in Perth at the same time when I was there. And the word was like, there's this guy who's, there's this lad who's, I think he was 16 at the time and he's phenomenal. And he beat Agassi in whatever it was. And that just seems like a completely different part of my life. <laughs> and then Federer still hasn't retired and they're the same age. Yeah. Like, it's it's remarkable. You, you know, I can't get my head around it. Hewitt's about, uh, he's about eight months older than Federer, but yeah, born in the same year, which is pretty... Pretty wild. Um, you mentioned Federer there, George, and it's, it's a nice segue really into uh, we didn't get to it last week, but you will have all seen perhaps, or maybe you haven't. Uh, maybe you're in that like 5% of listeners who only listen to the tennis podcast and don't uh, this tennis podcast and we don't absorb any other tennis news. Um, Federer was talking last week about his injury, he says it's fine, much better. Obviously, I was on crutches two months, so you have to start from the bottom. It was certainly the right thing to do. The knee wasn't right after Wimbledon. I couldn't go on. I'm currently in three parts. First, the whole rehab, getting back on your feet. Then afterwards, learning to walk and building up the whole thing. It's only now where I'm at the phase where I can start thinking about my comeback. I had a very good MRI a few weeks ago, which makes me feel positive. Um, that suggests that he might be in the region of starting to think about hitting some balls. Um, what do you think the, the cutoff would be, George, in terms of getting on court and hitting balls? Like what? Is there a date? I'm obviously talking Wimbledon because that's all anyone cares about. Will Federer play at Wimbledon? You know, does he have to be hitting balls by the beginning of June? Does he have to is the, hit the beginning of May? You know, what's the, the timescale? Um, well, I mean, to answer the first question, no, I don't think he'll play Wimbledon. I'm pretty sure he said early autumn was when he'd be coming back, which to me comfortably rules. I've never heard anyone refer to Wimbledon as an awesome tournament. So Fair enough. Be, <laughs> he's surprised. Good point well made. <laughs> um, you know, I think the question for me is, is he going for a US Open comeback or what I think is more likely, and I've sort of said this before, I kind of just see him kind of turning up to the Labour Cup from this point onwards a little bit. Like he might have a bit of a swan song at the Slams next year where he, he turns up, but I think his schedule is going to be so reduced and I'm pretty sure he'll be targeting the Labour Cup, really, um, because coming to London, it's a big financial event for him. Um, they're planning him and Nadal to play to each other and I, I kind of see that almost being Federer's space now. I'm, I'm not convinced he's... Well, we're all convinced he's not going to win another slam, but I'm not convinced he's going to come back and really be able to compete at the slams as in into second weeks and stuff now. I think... Is just going to be too much. I might be you think he's not a serious tennis player anymore? I think it's just going to be very, very, very difficult. And look, you know, Roger's done amazing things in the past and he's been written off time and time again. But doing this in your 40s, coming back from, what is it, third, fourth knee surgery now? I can't keep track. Because he also, he doesn't always tell you when he has multiple knee surgeries. <laughs> yeah. Um, and in terms of time scale, you know, he'll be really cautious with it because what happened last year, you know, he got three, four months out of himself, if that, and it, they weren't good months. I mean, there were times, you know, Federer's a guy who you see him lose a match. He comes straight in after a press conference, just gets it out of there. He's out of there. There were times he just wouldn't turn up for two hours and you heard him. He was honest about it, talking about having these deep reflective conversations. I think a lot of it will have been, can I carry on? Can I do this? Um, so I think, you know, it's going to be a long process. I wouldn't expect him to start hitting, I was going to say, until like March, April and just realise we're in March. Where's this year gone? Mm. Absolutely crazy. Um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't expect him really to be doing a lot of core work until probably April, May at best. And he'll he'll take it gently, gently, slowly, slowly. And I think he'll only do the Labour Cup, really, it would be my guess. Could be completely wrong in talking out my ass, but who knows? Wouldn't be the first time, that's for sure. Um, Calvin, what is it like? 
I know that the the, the goalposts have moved, and you know we talk a lot about like Sampras or Roddick, you know, guys who retired pretty early in terms of being serious tennis players. Um, what is it that has changed about the way people retire? Or has it not changed? And people always did this sort of two years of fannying around, for want of a better word, saying, oh, I'm a bit injured, but I might come back. And then they come back a bit and then they don't come back. And I don't know, is this what people always did? What? <laughs> you term that is this how people always did it like in the olden days because yeah none of us can tell us tell us about years. the old days calvin <laughs> no i mean i think it's just because he was still winning you know this is the thing and like even yeah. in like i've said it many times and yeah he had a favorable draw and all that but even at wimbledon he made quarterfinals of wimbledon how many players ever are going to make quarterfinals of wimbledon and the sort of semi-crocked could barely hit a ball federer did it last year so he did it was only because he was kept kept winning. And I think the two examples that you've used there, Rod Roddick was was struggling big time results-wise. It wasn't really injuries or anything. His game had just gone. Um Samfras had was struggling as well. And then he had just had out of nowhere had a phenomenal US Open. Um, and that was his last match. But he didn't announce he retired. But that was the thing with Samfras. He didn't, he just never played again. Yeah. Um, he, he never actually said, or he may have said it like a year later or something that he's not playing again, but at the time he didn't say it. But I think you've always had those situations. Like, I guess he continued to, not to Federer's age, but I guess he was still going. And I think it's just if, if you're winning and you're competing, then I think they'll keep going. I, I don't think, and for that reason, I don't, like George said, I don't think we'll see him at Wimbledon this year. I don't think we'll see him at any of the Sams because I think he was, when he lost that set six love to her catch, I think you could see he was, he was humiliated with that. And I don't think he wants, unless he, I think he'd come back if he thought he could wipe that memory out and compete. But if he thinks that it's no better than that, then I don't think we'll see him play them again. I think, yeah, on that point, I mean, I think there'll be a part of him that wants to kind of make sure that's not his last Wimbledon match. But there's also a sense of realism that it might just not be possible and he wouldn't want to risk another match. <laughs> Something like worse. That. Um, I was just going to say, as well, just as a random um, aside, I was doing a kind of YouTube script, uh, something I just do occasionally um, for something called Baseline Media um, this week. And the topic was a bit about college tennis that I know we spoke about last week. I was having, for that, um, I was doing a little bit of research into kind of the ages of um, tennis players now and compared to a decade ago. Um, I just thought this might be quite interesting. It's time to tell you what are those stats. So how many players over the age of, 32 do you think there were a decade ago so 2012 end of february what you in the top 100 in the top 100 players over uh, the age of 32 and when players. and when 10 years ago over the age of 10 years ago i think maybe six or seven bang on Calvin. six really right. six. that's how insane many, how many do you think there are now 20 well i know that the there was a period, I don't know whether it still is, but there was a period like about three years ago where the average age of the top 100 was like 30, 30 and a half years old. So That's wild. So, so there's, there's 22 now, so more than a fifth of the top 100 are over 32 now. But the other thing that just like blew my mind slightly was the oldest top 100 player in 2012 was 33. That was Radek Stefanek. He's now 11 <laughs> who are 34 to 40 in the top 100 right now. I mean, that just shows how quickly this has shifted, this trend. I think it's important how you read that, though, because we got to this stage where it, I think what the reason before because of that is that there's been a lot of players who've been hanging around. So it's easy to mistake that for when you say the average age of a player in the top 100 is 31. It's easy to think for players who are kind of getting older and still trying to make something and they're sort of 31 and still rank, say, 400 in the world. There's not the players breaking into the top 100 and not 31. It's just we've had a lot of the same players in the top 100. So I don't know how you could ever do these stats, but I think there's been over the last 10 years, I think there's been less change in the top 100 players than there, than there ever, ever has been before. Whereas mm. before you'd have a lot of churn on those players, I think. Mm. I think there's better access to like facilities and technology and sports science for more players now. So that I think that consistency will become like, kind of quite a regular thing from now that just maybe wasn't I think you know Federer Nadal and Djokovic's era has just come at a time where advancements have been just so huge in that field I, I think though because of, because of that 
I think because of that, the point I made there, George, though, that I think we will see it drop again purely because those those they they are on uh, mass the same kind of player, so they are all going to drop at a certain time. So I think what we'll then get is a new a new batch of younger players who mm. come in, ah, like the, <laughs> yeah, a sort of glut. Yeah, I, I wonder as well. It's kind of it's interesting because it's coincided with what what I see as a change in the game to the grind. You know, I would say that this is the era of the grind. You look at, I mean, Federer being the exception, but Djokovic, Nadal, Murray, they are grinders pretty much. Okay, they, they can do a lot more than that, but perhaps their most impressive quality is their physical fitness. And that would kind of, that would suggest the other way, right? That would, that would maybe be something that takes it out of players more and makes it hard to have some longevity. But I suppose it probably comes down to the fact those game styles are developed because of the level of fitness they're able to achieve. And kind of what I'm building up to is I wonder what the next, you know, what's going to be the next frontier for tennis? You know, Tiger Woods changed golf because he was the guy who was incredibly fit. Bryson DeChambeau is changing golf because he's now incredibly muscular and it's all speed and power. I mean, I wonder where you think the game's going, Calvin. I, I th- my personal opinion is that I've, I was talking with somebody about this. I don't know if it might even have been on here or not a couple of weeks ago, but... We're going to see more players who can hit clean winners off balls that are not mid-court, balls that are just behind mid-court, so kind of balls that are stood on the baseline. Mm. I think we'll see and kind of a bit like what the equivalent would be of the huge driving golf, just guys who have such phenomenal power that they can hit through. It won't necessarily come in serve, I don't think, although that'd be one of them, but I think baseline players who can just blow people away from, from behind the baseline. I think we'll see. We're seeing a few of them now in in terms of like Zverev can do it, um, Felix can do it, Shapovalov can do it. Kind of like I think we'll see a lot more of kind of like Del Potro type players coming in. It's funny because for years there's been this like hypothesis that tennis players will be like on average like six foot five, six foot six, in and you'll have this kind of new superhuman sort of style of player. And I, I think. You know, that, that's maybe been exaggerated how quickly that was going to go in. But I do think what we're seeing now is guys like Medvedev, who their movement is so good. Like Kevin Anderson has spoken about this before, like really well, when he kind of had his renaissance um, and kind of got really high ranked, got to the final of the US Open. One of the things he spoke about most was like big guys were learning how to move. And it sounds a bit ridiculous, but like people just weren't teaching people of that size how to move properly. And it's just, I think it has just dramatically changed. So, you know, while that prediction has been kind of wrong in the past, I do think the height will go up and guys will just develop styles like Medvedev and Zverev, as Calvin's kind of said. I, I think this is one of the reasons why as well, like where there was some talk last year from various journalists um, about how we'll see more serve volley coming back. And I, I, it just won't happen because although I think the, the, the standard of volley in now is poor, the players just don't play enough volleys because of that reason that their their opponents are hitting so big that they're rarely getting to the net and they're hitting so big from the mid court that they're rarely having to play serious volleys or or tough volleys they're mainly having put away volleys players are not coming to the net the approach will go i think will will get less and less to the to the extent where it becomes a bit it doesn't exist it's now you come to the net, you'll hit a bigger pro. When I say an approach, where a pro- the difference between approach and a finishing ball is approach is where you're intending to hit a volley. Um, and and a, the other shot is where you're intending to hit a winner. The future is now. There's your glimpse. Coming up, Naomi Osaka. Now, Naomi Osaka had a pretty difficult weekend, to say the least. Uh, if you haven't already seen it, uh, she was playing Veronica Kudamatova on Saturday night. Uh, I think in the second game, a spectator shouted out, Naomi, you suck. Uh, Osaka complained to the umpire. Uh, she went to serve. When she went to serve at the beginning of the third game, she was visibly crying. Um, she even asked the umpire to give her the microphone so she could directly address the person uh, in, who, who had made the comment. Uh, the umpire said if they did it again, they'd get them kicked out. Naomi Osaka lost the first set six love. She lost the second set six four did play a bit better, um, but it was obviously an incredibly uh, tough uh, match for her. She, unusually, having lost, she stayed on court and did a, a sort of on-court interview of sorts. She 
said, I just wanted to say thank you. I feel like I cry enough on camera. To be honest, I've been heckled before. It doesn't really bother me. But being heckled here, I watched a video of Venus and Serena getting heckled here. If you've never watched it, you should watch it. I don't know why, but it got into my head and it got replayed a lot. Just for context on on the incident with um, Venus and Serena in 2001, uh, Venus, they were drawn against each other in the semifinals of uh, the Indian Wells tournament in 2001. Uh, Venus Williams pulled out, uh, injured. Uh, Serena obviously got a walkover into the final uh, where she played Kim Clijsters and she won in three sets, but uh, she was pretty loudly booed and heckled by lots of parts of the crowd. Uh, her father, Richard, and Venus, who was in the, the crowd, they were also kind of abused and, and they ended up not playing in Indian Wells for 14 years after that. It is a very troubling video if you watch it. it it's, I mean, the wider context for it, I'm not entirely sure of, but um, it obviously had a huge effect on them and is one of the more unpleasant incidents in in tennis history. Um, how relevant that is to this particular situation. George, I know you got quite wound up about the kind of comparison because it, this doesn't feel like the same incident. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very difficult to take the two incidents and say this was anything like that. Now, that's not to say there might not be more context that we haven't seen. There might, it may well have been racially motivated, but having watched those videos again to kind of remind myself, because I was thinking, it didn't, I was, I was like, I was genuinely like, am I missing something? That said, I would also say that, you know, as kind of Naomi said, and I think Kudan Matova actually said as well, that in your mind, if you start thinking about that sort of thing and think about the history and whatever, even if it's not necessarily exactly the same, it's easy to understand. It's hard for me to sit here as a, a white man and say, you know, black women's shared experience, you know, that sort of understanding that greater context is very difficult for me to sit here and, and criticise. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I, I feel really sorry for Osaka. That's always my overwhelming kind of feeling with her because I, I think she's absolutely brilliant. I love her, like, game. I think she's great for the sport. I think she's a really engaging, interesting character. Um and, you know, it's not really helpful to compare how other players react to things. Obviously, I wouldn't really defend any hecklers um, because, you know, get a life or whatever. But I really also do think this one just wasn't that bad, right? I mean, it's okay. It's not that nice to say you suck or whatever, but compared to what other athletes have had and what kind of comes through, we're, we're just in this kind of space at the minute with Naomi where she's having... A really tough time and it's you know things impact people in different ways she has clearly taken this very badly and it, it the the sad consequence for all of this is just that she's always saying I'm not going to be playing much tennis and I think that's such a bad thing for women's tennis we want we're always saying we want more regularity in terms of the best players playing we want these rivalries to develop. We want these stories to develop. We want these guys around because it, it, they're so important. And Osaka's the most important player to women's tennis at the minute because she is such a fascinating character. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's just a great shame more than anything. And I'm not I'm certainly not going to sit and defend the heckler, but also I, I wasn't 100% convinced by the cross-context um, from Naomi, even though, it, you know, it, it undoubtedly probably played a you played a huge impact in how it was affecting her. Mm. But I, I wouldn't compare the two incidents or call them directly alike. I think that yeah. sort of undermines what actually Serena and Venus went through comparatively. Um, yeah. That's it, a bad way of putting it. And it's difficult it's, to talk about like that. <laughs> Sorry. It's one of those unfortunate things where, because she's mentioned it, I don't know if she's really mentioned it to to compare it. I think it's something that's gone on in in her head where she watched the video and it it stuck with her and it really affected her. And obviously Serena is her absolute childhood idol. And, she, you know, I think she would have been four years old when that happened. And, you know, she she was obsessed with Serena Williams and she's talked so much about how much um, she's had an effect on her career. So it's clearly one of those videos that's just kind of gone through her head a lot. And, you know, maybe she's just... And I think she said it, she'd not become obsessed with it, but it's been replaying in her head. And 
then you know you've kind of had a bit of a trigger moment yeah i i don't think it's unfair to say that it it was a pretty tame incident you know uh, it it wasn't nice but it was quite minimal and you know yeah it's had a big effect on her and that's that's something that she's obviously dealing with she she is in a clearly an incredibly fragile mental state of mind and you know as someone who's been in that place in their life once or twice it it doesn't take much and elite sport is a very very unforgiving place to be i would hate to be standing where she was in the state of mind that she clearly is in and doing what she was having to do um it's just yeah like you said George, it's really hard to watch and uh, you know tennis is such an isolating sport anyways it's, it's so you know people players are always talking about like you can be as good as you want physically as good as you want technically it's what between the ears is just as important and that's why there's been this massive like trend towards getting mental coaches which I know can widen Calvin up a little bit but you can understand why people are going down that way because you have to be I hate the word like mentally strong and mentally tough because you know there's nothing wrong with struggling with mental illness or anything like that but for elite level tennis you you need to be mentally in the right place to compete. I mean, it, that's yeah. just a fact. It's so hard. It's hard at the best of times. And if, if you're not and ready, what can come up, then it, it's going to be tough for her to come back. Properly. I think what's important to say is that, and it's what I try to do with my reporting about when people um, say I'm taking time off from sport because of a mental illness or whatever, or because of you know certain things that you can't find on an MRI scan, is I've tried to talk about them and report them like an injury. Because that's yeah. essentially what it is. And, that, and that's one of the problems with mental health is that it gets stigmatized in a way that people don't always believe it because they can't see it. Now, with sports people, we're often misled about injuries and we may well be being misled about certain mental health issues. I'm not saying about Naomi, I'm saying about gen- in general. Um, but if you think about it like that, if Naomi Osaka had like, you know, tripped over in the second game and hurt her hamstring and then had somehow battled on and, and, you know, it, it had hampered her, but she'd almost finished. We'd be going, oh, well, that's amazing. Look at how brave she was to kind of fight through that. And I think if you think about it like that and you you imagine that Naomi Osaka was effectively coming into this match, I think, you know, with a hamstring that was in, in pieces, it just happens that her hamstring was between her ears. Then I think it, it changes the way you look at it a little bit. But, um, I mean, Calvin, I know the, the great frustration here really is that we want the women's game to be great. And Naomi Osaka is a big part of what could make the women's game great. And, you know, not necessarily through any fault of her own. She's not able to do that. Yeah. I mean, as we've said, there's a lot of really excellent female players around now and it's not quite coming together, but she is the star. I think she's the, the real rock star of it. And you can't blame her for it, really. She just doesn't seem... We were having a discussion earlier on today, weren't we? And and it's what whether it classes for mental health or, or not, I don't know. But she just doesn't seem to be enjoying it one bit at the minute. Yeah. And having had some time off, she's barely played. Um, it, that doesn't really seem to have got any better. She, It is hard to tell with her because she's always kind of been a bit... I, I don't want to say sad might be the wrong word, but I know in, one of my in, friends she's was She's an introvert, that, right? She's an introvert. Yeah. I mean, one of my friends actually said, like, earlier on I was talking having the same conversation and he said that like he thinks it's all a bit of an act because there's no way she talks that way all the time and I said that I actually had a conversation with her like before she was like famous I guess in a, a tournament in Nottingham like only a brief one we both stood waiting to get something to eat at a cafeteria and she does talk that way that's how she talks and she is She's very sort of introverted, very quiet. And she's, from my very, very limited experience, she's a lovely girl. But she she really doesn't seem to be enjoying herself. But even when she was winning stuff, she never really seems. So it's hard to tell. Mm. Uh, what's interesting, and, and I've, I've voiced this before, is that I, I don't think her management have helped her out greatly. I don't think they helped. This all seemed to start with the, the, the French Open last year, didn't it? Where I think she got mm. some bad advice on how she worded things and that. And my, my friends who work in sports management told me today that they, her commercial schedule is still the busiest in all of sport for anyone. Wow. He's still churning that out and hasn't stopped churning that out in the last year. And 
they were saying that they don't know how she's managing to do that or whether she wants to do that. She may want to do it. She may really enjoy that. But she's very, very, very busy outside of tennis. Yeah, I think and you touched on it slightly there, Calvin, that the, the reality is for Osaka that tennis doesn't have to be the priority. She said before she's got other interests. She's got things she wants to do from like a business, from an activist perspective. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if she just walks away from this, honestly. And I think that would be so incredibly sad and awful for tennis. But it, it just would not surprise me one little bit if she just stops putting herself through this sort of thing. Um, and she's already said, I want to play a completely minimalist schedule, but I'm just, I'm not hundred percent convinced she'll, I don't want to say she's not driven to it, but I think she recognizes there are other things <clears throat> more important than tennis. And, you know, I think it'd be a great shame to lose her if that does happen. And I really hope I'm wrong there, but I'm struggling to see how this story comes back and turns itself around given all the kind of competing priorities, given everything that's going on, given how relentless tennis is and being able to compete at the top is so difficult. Uh, I just, I'm not sure how it's going to go from that perspective. No, it's, it's very hard to see. Yeah. It's a, you know, she said there's that clip that I think one of you shared saying, I just want to play as few tournaments as possible. I mean, that, I, I took it in isolation, which is always dangerous to do, but I'm also taking it in the context of everything that I know and have read about Naomi Saka in the last five years. That worries me because that, that looks like someone who their management says, well, look, if you don't play at least seven tournaments a year, then I don't see how we can continue this deal or that deal, or you know, you won't get this sponsorship and you won't get this endorsement to create this fashion label. And, and you know, as Calvin mentioned with her commercial schedule there. And I think if you we all watched the documentary about her, and there were times in that documentary when I thought, Crikey, she's being, you know, milked dry here, quite frankly. And she didn't look herself. And she, you know, I mentioned it today again. She, the first time she moved into her new house in LA, she, she spent all night staring at her phone because she didn't want to go to sleep because she was too scared to go to sleep. And like, that's, that's not a healthy thing. That's not, you know, someone who is in control of their own life even necessarily. So yeah, classically, I end up at the end of a, a conversation about Naomi Osaka feeling quite bleak about her prospects in all sorts of ways. Um, you know, I think what's also difficult is she's sharing parts of her life with us and not all of it. I like, obviously, I'm not criticizing her for that. I don't share all of my life with anyone. Um, although my girlfriend's in earshot, so I should at least pretend that I do. Um, it, it's just very hard to, to kind of watch someone go through what she's going through, I suppose. I almost don't want her to play tennis anymore. If I'm, if I'm quite honest, like I don't want to three or four times a year see Naomi Osaka go through this. And as well, because every time, if she, let's just say, because she would get a wild card wherever she wants one, let's just say she said, I'm only going to play Grand Slams. That's all I'm going to do. Can you imagine the media storm when she turns up? Every single time, it would be insane. And it would make, so it would make it worse uh, for her because we know that's something that she finds hard. Um, yeah, difficult stuff, really. I, has anyone got anything else to add on, on Naomi Osaka? I, I think that I, I often wonder, you know, you wonder on sort of sliding doors moments and these kind of things that she kind of like Australian Open, she kind of looked all right. And then she had that match against Inissimova and she had match points. And I think Inissimova hit a backhand winner onto the line. And you wonder if that just goes wide. Like, as, as always, when you start winning things and winning makes people happy, a bit bit more, more some people more than others. And, you wonder on those things, like if she didn't, because we always said at you at the Aussie Open, didn't we? If she could get through three rounds, then she becomes a contender. Yeah. And she was about half a millimeter from getting through the third round. Yeah. And and she didn't. And yeah, I I think I don't think she could just turn up at the slams because she'll just be undercooked. You saw it here. I mean, I watched a bit of the match last night, and she's just undercooked. Yeah. You can't play her the way that she. Yeah, you know, it's elite level sport and. You just can't do it, especially the way that she plays, where it's just all out. Yeah, you can't be a part timer. Just ask Nick Kyrgios, who's back, by the way, and won a match. But I'm I playing won't well. 
It, crikey, high praise from, from <laughs> Nick Kyrgios's biggest hater. Uh, That's not true. That's true. <laughs> into this again. Not true. My, my gripe is never with Nick Kyrgios with tennis. Okay. Yeah. We let's not get into it. We don't have that kind of time. Um, I mentioned Emma Raducanu in the intro. She uh, got back up and running. She picked up a win in Indian Wells, which was important because winning has not been easy to come by since winning the US Open. She beat Caroline Garcia 6-1-3-6-6-1 in the first round out in California. Um, she has just been knocked out of Indian Wells in what is the third round, her second match, because she gets a bye, of course, uh, by Petra Martic. Uh, she won the first set in a tiebreak, but then Martic took the next two, 6-4-7-5. It was a good match, to be fair. It was a long match as well. Two hours, 49 minutes. And this actually um, seems to be a theme, George, of Raducanu's season. You know, she obviously had that uh, record match against Daria Gavrilova, I think, which went past three hours. Uh, she had a very long one against Kovinic, which I know was obviously partly to do with uh, a blister. Um, she, she either seems to play incredibly short matches <laughs> because she gets battered uh, or very long matches, uh, which sometimes she wins and sometimes she loses. Any reason behind that, do you think, or just coincidence? I think what, what was noticeable today and, and what I noticed, I watched the whole match today and what was different from the US Open, I think that the mentality of the opponents has changed a little bit in the at the US Open, I think, because nobody knew her and she was younger. I think you can see they were actively tight and they were worried. They didn't want to mess up and they thought it'd be a huge humiliation if they lost to this qualifier who's 18. Yes. Whereas now, I think since this year in particular, the players, they don't have that. I think they see her more as a big scalp they can take. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, they're good players. And I think as we discussed last week, she's overranked. She's not the 13th best tennis player in the world. I think we briefly talked about UTR rating last week. And on that, she's 38 um, in the world. Um, and that feels but about having right. said that, sorry. And that feels about right. I'd, I'd say so. Yeah. But then Martic is 91. So Martic's UTR is lower than hers as well. So mm. still not a great, defeat on that regard but I just think that there's she's one of that coming back to your question James why are her matches usually pretty long it's because she's one of a group of about 60 women players who are all really close to each other in standard I think mm. I, I think this I do genuinely think this week was probably the, the most positive week there's been for Radicanu since since the US Open in many ways I, I know that's a bit of a weird thing to say but I think actually the calibre of the opponent she's playing there competing with well, like some of the other losses have been a bit kind of mystifying to me. I guess there was a big win against Sloan Stevens, but even that was kind of like, well, Sloan's had all this time off for a honeymoon or whatever. It didn't feel like Garcia is a, a decent tour level player. Okay. She's maybe in a bit of a dip compared to where she has been before. I think Martic is a good player. I know you're talking about the UTR there, but Martic is a solid player and she's got weapons. It's, not an easy match. I'm not saying it's a good thing that she's lost that match, but she's she felt more competitive to me in the bits I was watching on very poor trained Wi-Fi. <laughs> I thought it was a, a much better standard from Emma, and I was less concerned in many ways, even though there was that kind of mental bump. Calvin's looking like he's going to strongly disagree with everything I'm saying here, but I, I think there was I think there were shoots of encouragement this week that maybe made me have a little less of a downer about it, while also agreeing that we don't think she's a top 13 player at the minute, realistically. I, I think the thing is, right, if if she wasn't British, say she was, I don't know, Slovakian, <laughs> we wouldn't be looking at this week and going, she had a pretty good week. <laughs> so I, you know, you'd, you'd be going like, all right, see her who won the US Open has won one and lost one again. Okay. Like, I, I just think, it, I think she's where she, she is where she is, and that's not too not to sort of criticize and not to overly praise her. She's just kind of where she is. She's about, like we say, she's about the, somewhere between the 40th and 60th best player in the world, maybe. Yeah. And you know, I'm certainly not being effusive in my praise. I think if anything, it was a bit of a backhanded compliment because everything else has been pretty bad. since <laughs> There was that one week, wasn't there in Linz, but even then the match he lost, I thought was really disappointing. Um, so yeah, I, I, I still think this was uh signs of recovery against and I think what the stage she's getting to is getting used to competing on the tour against these guys week in week out getting used to the grand and this felt to me more like what I'd expect as a business 
as usual set of performances, even if there's not been a big deep run, which we all think she's capable of, and I think will start happening soon. I'd say that I, the win against Garcia was a good win, I think. Garcia's a decent player, right? But she's not going to play many worse players than Petra Martic in the second round of Masters Series. Third round, even. I think that's... Sorry? Third round, even. Third round, sorry, yeah, second match, yeah. So, you know, we can sit here and go, Martic is a good player. She is a good player. But this is the highest level of the game. So in the third round, you're going to be getting players like that. And, hmm. you know, it's not like, look, she doesn't have to start winning. She could have a year of losing to people like that, and it won't make much difference. But, you know, I think what we are seeing is that winning the US Open was a freak. Yeah, yeah. There's no question about it. Like, we can sit here and go, oh, she's amazing and all this kind of thing but it, it was a freak situation no it wasn't but it was a freak situation for her to win it but it happens all the time in the women's game which is mm. one of the problems with the women's game i, I think also it's important context for this and you know i had a little bit of insight into it having spoken to the people around her is that they weren't sure she was going to play indian wells full stop she had this injury which was still not really sure what it is and they've been quite coy about it the whole time it looked like a hip injury in Mexico. They've now talked about it as a leg injury, which is very woolly indeed and means almost nothing. Um, this is, you know, is a problem. And they, I mean, genuinely, I was talking to people on Monday with her first round match, or second round match was, I think, on Friday. And they they said, well, we don't know. We've, we're out there, but we don't know if we're going to play. Um, and even like the night before, they said, we think we are, but, you know, we'll have to see with the physios. And she, she called it a bonus. So, you know, there is that for context as well. I mean, I I didn't think she looked injured. She moved great when I was watching. I'd forgot about the injury, actually, and I was watching it, and I thought, you know, she really does move well. She's yeah. quick around the court. She defends well. So I think there might have been a bit of trying to cover any, you know, bit of excuse making there if it didn't go well. But she certainly didn't look injured. She didn't certainly look like she had a lower any lower body injury today. Mm. Yeah. Just one very brief point, finally. I mean, you know, she's obviously got these points of the bank kind of US Open, but I think from Emma's perspective in this kind of change of mindset or whatever, the top 10 at the minute, as it is, is not full of great players in the women's game. Like, it is a very crackable top 10. This consistency will come and it, it she'll find that extra level, I'm pretty sure, to become a kind of regular top 10 player in two or three years. So, you know, I agree US Open was a bit of a freak and there were lots of things that, you know, undoubtedly were to her advantage at that point but from her perspective the gap's not going to be massive I don't think to kind of get to the level where she needs to be even if it is going to take a little bit of time I, I I'm not as certain as you are George I, I think that like I look I think she could she there's a chance she could be in top 10 but I don't think it's nailed on that she ever becomes a regular top 10 player I, I think you know I think that's far from certain but I do think that she has like any of the there's 25 players who could be in the top 10, but I don't think she's. I don't think we're looking at. Whereas I'm certain that Corey Goff will be a world class player. I don't. I, I'm not as certain about that as Emma Raducanu. Hmm. We shall see, as I always say. Um, some quick hits. Uh, Novak Djokovic uh, entering Indian Wells and then saying the CDC won't let him into America, so he's pulled out. Uh, is this going to keep happening, George, in a sentence? I bloody hope not. Um, <laughs> just... Yes, I agree. Let's move on. Oh, isn't it? But, yeah, like, there's not much is he more still, still in Miami? No, he pulled out of Miami as well, in fact. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, what, what annoys me, I texted Djokovic's team, and eventually they got back to me, and they, they said, you know, oh, um, we're not going to play automatically included in the draw as he is every year, which suggests to me that they are going to keep doing this to an extent, to a late, lesser or greater extent that he, they're yeah. just going to put, they assume they're going to put him in every draw. Yeah. And like the tournament we're talking about, how they, they couldn't provide any clarity on the situation. Like the, when the draw was actually happening, but the clarity was obvious. I mean, the bloke can't go to America at the minute. So I don't know what planet these people are on where they're talking. <laughs> it's going to happen. I guess it's just a case of following procedure for the sake of procedure. But it's annoying because it just it ruins the draws and stuff. You know, it, it makes things top heavy, which you know maybe isn't the worst thing in the world. But it's just 
just stop it. Just pull out. We know you're not coming. Don't be a dick. <laughs> Thank you very much, George. Uh, Calvin, another quick hit. Rafa Nadal up against Dan Evans in the third round. I appreciate this will expire fairly quickly, but uh, in a word, Dan has a chance. Uh, it's not a great matchup. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've said before. Like I think Nadal, like Nadal's record against small, smallish guys with one-handed backhands, right-handed. Is like something like ten thousand and one. He lost to Steve Darcy at Wimbledon one year, and I think other than that, I don't think he's ever lost to anybody with a one hander, other than maybe Federer and Stan Wawrinka. Um, I think Nadal is the worst possible matchup for Dan Evans, honestly. <laughs> really, it's a it's a grim matchup, um, yeah. and hopefully, I'm wrong, and he's going to just randomly bat in Nadal, but. Tennis is a funny game. Like we, yeah. you know, who would have had Dan beating Djokovic at Monte Carlo last year? Yeah, yeah that's true. Actually, I, I think this would still be less of an upset somehow. But uh, yeah, that, that that would that was right up there certainly. Uh, Nadal, Nadal, should, Nadal shouldn't actually be like Petr, um, Sebastian Corda absolutely choked against him last night. Yeah. Um, he really should have. He really should have beaten Nadal. Mm. Um, that that would have been a pretty massive result for Corder, obviously. I mean, does that you obviously watched it, Calvin, and got a good idea of what happened? That suggests that he's moving closer and closer to being a top player. Oh, he's a he's a good player, no doubt about it. But he served for the match twice. He was five mm. two up, double break in the third. Um, then he was two points away from it at five four. Um, again, he had a, a short ball on I think thirty all. He had a short ball at thirty all and was really better really pushed it in and Nadal passed him and then that made it five all and yeah he should he should have won it well maybe that's the uh, chink of light that Evo needed to pull off one of the great upsets um a bit on and Amanda Anisimova um people may have noticed that she had uh, match points against Leila Fernandez she failed to take them Leila Fernandez probably the best player match point down in the women's game at the moment because she just keeps doing it um, Anasimova pulled out later. She she revealed on Twitter afterwards that she had been really quite ill all week. Um, and uh, the umpire asked her to stay on court because it was so sudden, but uh, she just left. I, I do wonder whether really quite ill. I think we all know the type of illness where you're like, no, 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 I'm really quite ill. And actually, I can't stay in this particular spot for any more than I can because there's somewhere I need to be. Um, a, an appointment with Armitage Shanks. Um, without speculating too much on, on illness, George, I understand that she's also split with her coach this week, uh, Darren Cahill. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really big blow for both Anisimova and for me in our season-long who's going to climb up the rankings. <laughs> I'm pretty annoyed about it, to be honest, because when I saw them teaming up, I was like, this is very, very good news. Cahill is a seriously good coach. Um, and I think even Calvin would praise Darren Cahill, possibly. Which even Calvin, I've, I've said about eight coaches today are all world class. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a more there's a more broad comment about your uh, uh, barraging of coaches in women's tennis, I suppose. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, Darren Cahill's world class coach. There's no doubt about <laughs> it. Um, I don't know what's going on there. there were, I saw a couple of reports. One said that like he was struggling with. Like the, and I know you know you can imagine this. He was struggling with the the restrictions coming and going from Australia, yeah. um, where he lives. Um, he found it a bit much, um, which I can believe. Um, also, as mentioned before, Amanda Isimova, um enjoys her life quite a lot, and I don't know whether that fit into what Darren Cale has experienced for the last few years with Simona Halep, who hmm. I think is like doesn't enjoy living in Miami and then the nightlife of South Beach as much as Amanda Nittisimova does. Right. Uh, let's move on quickly to Miami, where Jack Draper has a wild card. Um, Calvin, I, I, this was inevitable. I, I, it was Some people were tweeting triumphantly that he had earned a wild card in Miami. I think he could have lost every match this year and he might still have got a wild card in Miami because he's obviously an IMG property and it's run by IMG. But, but this is very much deserved when you look at what he's been doing. 
Uh, yeah, to a degree, I, I, I hate using the phrase, this is a coach in me as well, I hate using the phrase deserve the wild card. I don't think anyone deserves one, uh, and I don't think anyone should think that they should have had one or earned it or what have you. Um, I, wild cards are what they are, and I think it's a, it's a poor mindset when you start arguing, oh, well, I should have had one and this kind of thing. That's not what they're for. But listen, he, he's a player. It wouldn't surprise me if he wins matches there. He's He's already, I think, playing as that of somebody who's well inside the top 100 in the world. Completely different entity from where he went a year ago, where he just had COVID, was probably a little bit undercooked. Um, I, if he gets a decent draw, I think we could see him winning at least one match there. Mm. For people who don't remember, he um, he well, he basically passed. Well, he didn't quite pass out, but he lost a tight match. Did he lose to Francis Tiafo? Have I made that up? No, um, it was the um, Kazakhstan, the guy from Kazakhstan. Oh yeah, um, uh, you're absolutely right, uh, Kukushkin. The yeah, and he was coming back into it. That was the thing. Kukushkin had a really big start, and then Jack got back into it, got it back even, and Kukushkin was wobbling. I mean, mm-hmm. that was the match where he famously featured on... Um, he famously died, according to the <laughs> anti-vaxxer of the world. Um, in an anti-vaxxer then, propaganda video, yeah. Yeah, whereas he just actually tripped up. and he was, um, Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the heat, the, to be fair, Miami is blooming hot, and uh, the Brits always get rubbish draws because of the time zones, so they always get put in the afternoon, so it's on TV over here at a reasonable hour. But, um, yeah, George, you want to say something? Yeah, as you say, I mean, he, he proved at Queen's in the summer he can mix it with top guys. You know, he got win, wins against Sinner. I, I think he'll he'll back himself to do really well here. And as Calvin says, a decent draw for him, just avoiding someone like a Medvedev, someone like that in the first round, like one of the really top guys. I, I, well, he I will, right? Because it's he, he won't be seeded and, like, he he's guaranteed yeah. not to face a seed in the first round. So that takes the edge off a bit. Yeah, so... Yeah, yeah, of course. So, yeah, I think it'll be great. I think he'll have a good chance whoever he draws then in that case. With that in mind, against the non-seeded players, I give him at least a 30% chance against anybody who isn't seeded next week. Mm. At least. Kyrgios, maybe, I think. (laughs) He's he's left-handed. He'd find Kyrgios' backhand, which is crap. (laughs) That feels like a good note to end on. Thanks very much for your company, as always, chats. Thank you to you the listener for joining us as well please do leave us a rating and a review it's really important follow us on twitter at love tennis pod and do of course come back next week sports social podcast network